Love is in the air, or is it? Companies are popping up saying that they can help you find your match through the power of scent. But are pheromones a chemical way to find your true love, or just a myth? On this episode of the Oxford Sparks Big Questions podcast, we are looking at the science behind love at first smell and asking, does love have a scent? Hello, I'm Emily Elias, and this is the show where we seek out the brightest minds at the University of Oxford, and we get them to weigh in on the tricky questions that change the way we understand the world. And on this episode, we've got a love doctor. Okay, that's a total lie, but we've got somebody who knows a lot about pheromones. Uh, I'm Tristram Wyatt, and I'm an emeritus fellow at Kellogg College and a senior research associate at the Department of Zoology, University of Oxford. Let's start off with the basics. What is a pheromone? Well, Tristram says, these are invisible chemical signals that members of the same species send each other. So far as we know, every kind of animal uses pheromones in some way. The only possible exceptions are the whales and dolphins. But I got a feeling that even those will be found to have pheromones too. The concept of using scent to attract a mate is not new. Tristram says the ancient Greeks were the first to catch on to the idea after looking at dogs in heat. So the ancient Greeks knew that a female dog in heat gave off something that you could put on a towel uh, from her reproductive organs and male dogs would follow the towel and very enthusiastically. And that told those ancient Greeks that it wasn't a, a bark or something coming from the dog, it was a smell. There were lots of other examples going through the ages. There's a beekeeping manual from the 17th century, and the author describes the way that if you're stung by one bee, you should take out the sting because other bees will be attracted by the evil humour and will sting you again. And that's still true. So we've known for a long time that there were these invisible chemical signals. The problem is that the quantities are tiny. We're talking about pico and micrograms, unimaginably small quantities of material. While people were suspicious, no one had actually extracted a pheromone to prove it existed. Cut to the 1950s, when a German Nobel Prize winner in chemistry named Adolf Budnet came into the picture. He won his prize for identifying the first steroid human hormone in the 1930s and decided to start a new challenge to try and find the first pheromone. So hormones are within the body, pheromones are between bodies. And he made a very wise choice. He went to the domesticated silk moth. And that was a wise choice because to get enough material with the chemistry of that time, he needed half a million moths. And from half a million moths, he extracted just 12 milligrams of material. So that's a few grains of salt. That was enough to make the identification. And the way he did it was really clever. He, all the way through, asked the male moths, is the exciting pheromone in this extract? If they said yes, he continued. And finally, when he identified the molecule and then synthesized it, he went back to the male moths to say, have I got the right molecule? Have I synthesized the right molecule? The moths said yes. The way they said yes was by fluttering their wings. It's a very characteristic, positive response. And the 
way of researching a pheromone, the way you find a pheromone, has largely remained unchanged since a Budendance pioneering work. The first pheromone was identified and the term was actually coined in 1959. That same year, a Harvard entomologist named E.O. Wilson found that ants gave off a trail pheromone to help to keep them together and a alarm pheromone to send out a warning signal to other ants. But Tristram says when it comes to mammals, things get complicated. Mammals are very smelly. And what this means is that picking out the pheromone molecules from that very smelly background makes it very hard to identify which ones are pheromones. But that didn't stop scientists from looking, and in the 1970s, the first mammal pheromone was identified in mice. One of these mouse pheromones is intriguing. It was given the name Darcin, and it was discovered by Jane Hurst, uh, who runs a research group up at the University of Liverpool. And this is a large protein that's produced in large quantities in the urine of the territorial male mice. So these are house mice. And they basically paint the whole of their territory with urine. Now, she named it Darcin uh, after the uh, film. Uh, and it's the wet shirt moment uh, when Darcy comes out of the lake uh, in the film version of Pride and Prejudice. And it was a very um, good move to call it this because the official name is uh, Major Urinary Protein 20, and that's a lot less catchy. Do you think Colin Firth knows? Uh, I don't know, but it'd be fun to ask him. So picture a Colin Firth-like mouse coming out of the lake with his white shirt coated in hot urine and the lady mice just swooning. Using a special part in their nose, they're able to remember that male mouse's scent and location and when it's time to mate, oh, they'll be back for that signature scent. Yep, super sexy stuff. Okay, so mice have pheromones. What about humans? And the first idea was that we might be attracted, we might even be giving off a molecule that male pigs produce. So this uh, is known uh, as boar taint, and it's in the saliva of male pigs during the breeding season, and female pigs show a particular behaviour, lordosis. They basically arch their back and make it easier for mating uh, when they detect this molecule and a male that they like. So when this was found in human armpits, this same molecule, androstenone, and androstenol, these two molecules, uh, there was much speculation that since these molecules had a particular effect in pigs, then perhaps they might have the effect in humans. Now this was actually very poorly evidenced. Uh, the amounts in human armpits were tiny, and there really was no evidence that there was very much difference between men and women in the amount they produced in the armpit. In the 90s, the journey to be the first to discover the human pheromone takes a twist. Professors from the University of Utah patented two new molecules, which they claimed were human pheromones. And these molecules were androstyenone and estratetraenol. Now, these molecules were strange candidates uh, because they really hadn't been noticed before. The estratetraenol, which they proposed as the female pheromone, 
uh, has only ever been found in the urine of women in the third trimester of pregnancy. That isn't the time when you're actually looking to find a mate. The claims were made in a patent and in a very short conference paper to which there really was no evidence attached. Indeed, the only information about the source of the molecules and why these particular molecules had been chosen was simply the words, the molecules were supplied by the Erox Corporation, which is no methods at all. Aside from the seemingly randomness of the molecules, Tristram says the study has never been successfully replicated. And probably not much would have come from it. But in the year 2000, Professor Martha McClintock from the University of Chicago, a very reputable researcher in this field, seemed to endorse the Utah study. The problem is that whereas Butendant had worked for 20 years and done exhaustive bioassays to check that the molecule he was proposing really was the pheromone, nothing like that had ever been done with these two molecules. And then very quickly the ready availability of these molecules in the post. Basically, you'd send off your check and the molecules would arrive in the post and you could start to do sexy research on human sex pheromones, it appeared, without all the difficulties of doing that hard chemistry. So it became very popular uh, in the years since 2000 for psychology labs in particular interested in human behaviour to try out these molecules. And it is very disturbing because it means that we have a expanding pyramid of research that is based really on nothing. Outside of the science community, pheromones have become a part of the pop culture. I mean, they are plot points in TV sitcoms, there are perfume lines based on them, and they've inspired singles nights called pheromone parties. So you get a club packed full of people and they just pass around plastic bags containing musky t-shirts that a mysterious stranger has slept in for three days straight. And if you're attracted to a certain smelly shirt, you take a picture with it and boom, love connection. Tristram says, be wary. So the smell breaks the ice, um, but it isn't pheromones. And the reason it's not pheromones is pheromones are molecules that are the same in all males or in all females. That's how you find them. You're looking for the molecules that are common to all males or or females. This is all about difference. It's a lovely idea, um, but what will be true is that it breaks the ice and gets people talking. So in that sense, it's a great way of meeting people, even though it's not about pheromones. Tristram says right now, human pheromones are a zombie myth. You knock it down, but it pops back up. And so far, the answer is that no molecule or molecules have been identified as human pheromones. They simply haven't been shown to exist. And I'm sad because I'd love them to exist, but nothing has been shown yet. It's the kind of thing that we would love to imagine exists, and it is part of the culture. We talk about the chemistry of a relationship. We talk about the moments when we first meet, when we first kiss. And it also doesn't surprise me that very quickly these ideas were commercialized because we're ever hopeful, we're always searching for love. 
And if somebody can offer it in a bottle, so much the better. Anything that increases our confidence is going to be very attractive. So, sorry ladies and gents, human pheromones are not the answer to your search for true love. This podcast was brought to you by Oxford Sparks from the University of Oxford with music by John Lyons and additional music from Costa T. And a special thanks to Tristram Wyatt. Please tell us what you think about this podcast. You can find us on Twitter and tweet at Oxford Sparks. You can find us on Facebook. And of course, we have a website, oxfordsparks.ox.ac.uk. And if you are looking for another awesome podcast about love, head over to the Ant Hill podcast from The Conversation. They are looking at what's next for sex and talking about sex robots, the future of sex research, and the expansion of online sex work. The Ant Hill is available from theconversation.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you find a little lovin'. I'm Emily Elias. Bye for now.